2: an experiment i
1: didn't know so far like it sounds so simple they had no idea but now the data i find this not only refreshing but but at some level astounding nature welcome back to the nature podcast this week we'll be learning what ancient houses can tell us about inequality And we'll also be taking a look
0: at a bacterial communication system. This is The Nature Podcast for November the 16th, 2017. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up today, we've got a bit of an unusual topic for The Nature Podcast. We spotted a paper in this week's issue about how inequality in a society could have something to do with whether that society has cows. Sharmini Bundel has been finding out more.
2: Economic inequality and the wealth gap sound like very modern topics. Are the rich getting richer and the poor poorer? Tim Kohler is interested in how patterns of wealth change, in particular this gap between rich and poor. But he's not looking at modern societies. Instead, he's using archaeology to figure out the economic inequalities in prehistoric human societies. But if the societies have no written records, how can you find out how rich or poor the people were?
3: The way we can tell about wealth from the archaeological record is always indirect because we don't have tax returns, for example, or any of those nice things. What we do have are house sizes. So cross-culturally, it seems to be true that richer households live in larger houses.
2: And so that allows you to see, Okay, over here we have all the houses are kind of roughly the same size, whereas in this one, most of them are small, but there's a big castle in the middle, you know, maybe someone super rich lived there and ruled over all the rest or something like that.
3: That's exactly the line of evidence we're using. And of course, if you have things on those extremes, it's easy enough for archeologists to spot that in many cases, the distribution is someplace in the middle. You might have quite a few small houses and some somewhat larger houses. And then one can construct what we call a a Gini coefficient, which is a measure of the unevenness of the distribution of house sizes. So Gini coefficients will be high, that is, towards one, when a few households, control most of the wealth in a society. And they'll be quite low towards zero when wealth is evenly distributed.
2: How unequal is uh, different societies around the world today?
3: Well, the developed countries, they tend to run uh, anywhere from about, say, 0.45 up to about 0.8 or 0.85 with the United States.
2: So going back uh, through history, is the wealth gap something that's been changing through sort of different civilizations? In
3: hunter-gatherer times, that is before the last 10,000 years, wealth distributions were probably very narrow. But then, as people begin to develop uh, domestication of plants and animals, uh, rather slowly, at first, jinnies begin to creep up and they really start to take off when people become very sedentary and then they can efficiently pass uh, material wealth along, including land, including cattle, including uh, material goods of all sorts to their children, and then it can accumulate, and then things uh, get much less equal.
2: So you went all through history. You took archaeological sites from all over Eurasia into China, Europe, and a bunch from North America as well. Were there any surprises when you actually started looking at the data?
3: At first, When I looked at the data, I thought, well, it's about what we expected to see. But I got my big surprise when I looked at the Gini trajectories at the largest possible spatial scale. That is, I divided the world up into the old world, which is primarily in our sample, Eurasia, and the new world, which in our sample, is North America and Mesoamerica, which is to say Mexico.
2: So you're looking at sort of before the Europeans arrived?
3: Yes, in the period we call pre-Hispanic, before Columbus gets here. And what stood out was that in the first 2,500 years or so, after societies developed agriculture, their increase in Gini trajectories was very similar. But the big surprise was that at about 2,500 years after agricultural had been developed in any specific location in either the Old World or the New World, the Jinis in the Old World continued to increase in magnitude, whereas the Jinis in the New World stayed about the same and continued at about the same level throughout the rest of uh, the prehistoric period. They never got up to the levels of inequality that we see in the Old World. And so that became the big puzzle. Why is it that the old world and the new world diverged at that time?
2: So when I think about early farmers who are sort of first starting to settle and domesticate crops and things, um, I can't see any obvious differences between North America and the old world. So what on earth is creating such a different pattern in how their societies evolve? what
3: happens in the old world, we believe, and this is at the level of a hypothesis at this point, is that agricultural extensification begins to be important. Extensification means that people are beginning to use draft animals, oxen, for example, to be able to farm large areas that aren't necessarily very close to where they're living. And probably only certain households can afford to keep a big healthy team of oxen and those households can rent out their teams of oxen to other households so that's a real difference and i think that in part it's made possible by large domesticable mammals like cattle
2: so i can understand that the um, europeans and asians are using oxen like this but surely there must be some equivalent in north america where they could have done the same
3: Well, not really. The closest parallel there was, was in South America, where there were camelids, llamas and alpacas. But these animals were too slight to be able to pull a plow. And then if you look at North America and Mesoamerica, there were simply no large domesticable animals.
2: It seems really simple to pin this whole evolution of of wealth disparity on sort of hey I've got some oxen now I've got cows sort of my problems are over I mean, <laughs> I mean do you think it really is that simple?
3: It's, no it's not that simple and we don't mean to claim it's that simple but we we do look to try and find the sort of original difference that began to snowball into creating other differences.
0: That was Tim Kohler at the Washington State University talking to bundell His paper is out now at nature.com forward slash
1: nature, along with a News & Views article. The news chat is still to come, where we'll be learning about Eve the research mouse and her countless descendants. First though, Sharmini's back, and she's brought the research highlights with her.
2: Scientists have discovered that male, fringe-lipped bats furnish their forearms with an odorous crust for reasons that aren't entirely clear. This crusty cologne was found on bats all year round, but the number of smelly males captured increased from September to December, just prior to the female bat's peak pregnancy time in March. Males with these forearm crusts also had enlarged testes, adding further weight to the theory that this dressing up has a role in reproduction. The chemical composition of the acutely smelling accoutrement is currently unknown, although the researchers suggest it's unlikely to be secreted, but potentially could be related to the bat's saliva, as crusty males were shown to lick their forearms more. Fly on over to the Journal of Mammology to read more. Researchers in the US have been using X-rays to examine explosions in encased spaces like rocket casings. They used high-resolution X-rays to probe the ignition of small aluminium canisters packed with one of two explosives, TATB or HMX. When heated to ignition, the group noticed a difference between the two combustible compounds. TATB's Big Bang is largely down to heat conduction. HMX's accelerated explosion, on the other hand, is caused by a combination of conduction and convection of hot gas. It's hoped that this new knowledge will enable explosion rates to be manipulated in the future. Blast off to applied physics letters to read the whole paper.
1: Right, my slot now, and today I want to talk about communication. Not communication between humans, not even between animals. Today, I want to talk about bacteria and how some of them speak to each other through a process known as quorum sensing. So let's talk about how it works. The system is controlled by a small diffusible signalling molecule that quorum-sensing bacteria release into their environment. When there's just one bacterium present, not much happens as the signal is too diffuse to do anything. But as this bacterium multiplies into a colony and all the members are releasing the signalling molecule, it gets more and more concentrated. Eventually, the molecule reaches a threshold and, boom, it binds with its corresponding receptor and switches on a set of specific genes. Now, this happens in all the bacteria and it pretty much happens in unison. Quorum sensing was first discovered in the late 60s, early 70s, but for a couple of decades there wasn't much interest in the field, and far from a quorum of researchers working on it. One of these researchers, though, was Pete Greenberg from the University of Washington, who's co-written a review for Nature about the history and future of quorum sensing. Interest in the topic picked up again in the 90s after some important discoveries, as Pete explains.
4: A group in Rochester discovered a system in a human pathogen, Pseudomonas aeruginosa. I think finding a human pathogen that used quorum sensing to control its virulence really changed the trajectory of how the field was expanding.
1: Pseudomonas aeruginosa is a bacterial species that can cause disease in animals, plants and humans. While other bacteria use quorum sensing to control things like luminescence, in Pseudomonas, it controls some rather different genes.
4: In Pseudomonas aeruginosa, our pathogen, it turns on genes for production of an extracellular protease, production of toxins. Pseudomonas makes cyanide and other factors that we call public goods, things that are outside the cell and can be shared by all the members of the group.
1: So this isn't the Nature Political Science podcast, but this talk of public goods and sharing implies that an element of socialism is involved in quorum sensing. The bacteria all work towards a common goal, helping each other out and sharing the rewards. However, given that it takes energy to be part of the team, there can be the temptation to not play by the rules.
4: The concept really surrounds what I call Darwin's dilemma. Other people have called it that too. And that is that There's some cost to cooperate and produce shared resources. If a cheat is among us, the cheat will have a fitness advantage because it won't pay the cost of cooperation but can benefit from the cooperation of others. And if it has a fitness advantage, it should overtake the population. Yet we know cooperation exists.
1: To learn more about cheating, researchers grew Pseudomonas aeruginosa on milk protein. The bacteria secrete an enzyme to break down this protein, which allows it to be used as food. Enzyme production is under the control of quorum sensing, so it only gets switched on when the colony is of sufficient size. But in this population, cheats emerge, who've lost their quorum sensing machinery. These mutants don't have to waste energy secreting enzymes, they just freeload off the work of their colony mates. If too many cheats emerge, there's not enough bacteria doing the work and the colony collapses. Under these conditions, levels of cheating Pseudomonas fluctuate at around 30% of the colony. Pete and his colleagues have identified one of the ways that the productive members keep the cheats in check. This process is called policing.
4: And the way these bacteria do this is they make toxins that the cheats can't make. They couple toxin production to quorum sensing. So if you're a quorum sensing mutant, you don't make the toxin. Turns out you don't make the immunity factor for the toxin. The cooperators make the toxin, deliver it to the cheats, and it holds the cheats at
1: bay. So things in our bacterial utopia have taken a bit of a dark turn here. Not only do cheats exist, but if you're caught freeloading, there's the chance that you might be killed by your more industrious neighbours. And it's not just the cheats within that you might need to be careful of if you're a quorum-sensing colony. Another area being researched is the threat of spies listening in.
4: So there are bacteria that have signal receptors and don't have genes to make the signal themselves. Salmonella was the first example that was discovered. And the idea is that they're eavesdropping on populations of other species, and somehow that eavesdropping is giving them a fitness advantage.
1: Despite being discovered almost 50 years ago, there's still lots to learn about quorum sensing. There's hope that we can manipulate the system, for example, to mitigate the ability of bacteria to cause disease. As someone who's been studying these systems for years, I asked Pete what the big concepts are that we still need to get a handle on.
4: In the review, we sort of talked about the next hill, which was understanding how groups of bacteria can interact with one another. For a human analogy, and these are always dangerous, we've learned how individuals within a a city are interacting with each other. But we know that two cities next to each other can interact in some higher level way. We know that bacteria exist in clusters and groups. We don't know how those groups interact with each other.
1: That was Pete Greenberg from the University of Washington there. Head over to nature.com nature to read the review, which covers lots of different aspects of quorum sensing.
0: Time now for this week's News Chat, and I'm joined in the studio by Lizzie Gibney, Senior Reporter for the Physical Sciences here at Nature. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Adam. Now, first up, a story that is probably quite close to your heart. It's a particle physics story, and there are plans to build a particle accelerator. Well, firstly, what's wrong with the LHC?
5: The LHC is great, but at some point we are going to want to move on to something uh, that will be a follow-up. So you could have um, greater energies that you could collide particles together with, or you might have a different type of machine that collides different kinds of, uh, different kinds of particles. So physicists are looking to the future to, say, 2030 and beyond, um, to when we've used the LHC for everything we can already use it for and we need something else.
0: So in this specific case, it's to do something a bit different. Different to what the LHC does,
5: exactly. So it'd still be colliding particles, but instead of being a massive ring that collides protons, which contain quarks, this would be a linear collider, and it would be smashing together electrons and positrons. So that's the um, antimatter version of electrons. So it's much, uh, it's a much cleaner kind of collision, and you'd be making much more precise studies. And um, so Japan actually hitched effectively to host this facility, which is is known as the ILC, the International Linear Collider, in 2012, just after the discovery of the Higgs
0: boson. So that's the plan for this collider. But as I understand, that plan's been somewhat scaled back lately.
5: That's right. So for decades now, for 25, 30 years maybe, this collider has been on the table as the most likely follow-up to the LHC. Um, But of course, throughout that whole period, most people expected that the LHC would be fine more particles. Obviously, it very famously found the Higgs boson that endows other particles with mass in 2012. But since then, it hasn't found anything else, despite working amazingly well. So the question is, how much do we need a new collider? And what exactly should it be looking for? So the plan was always to build around a 30 kilometer linear collider and to go up to energies of around 500 giga electron volts. And now what physicists are talking about is a plan to just rein that in because it's very expensive. It's going to be about $10 billion. And the thing is, at the moment, we don't actually know that it would be exploring any new particles because we haven't found any. So the proposal is to make it a little bit cheaper, which might make it a bit more palatable. Although, to be honest, it's still probably going to be quite a hard sell. Um, But in doing that, you would also have a slightly different physics case so you'd still be able to study the Higgs which is one of the main things it would do but you would no longer be able to study the top quark which is the, the heaviest quark particle
0: If it's scaled back in this way and it's only really designed to be studying the Higgs is it still worth doing?
5: Physicists would say yes, of course uh, the Higgs boson was discovered really very recently and it's um, only been studied at the LHC so that there is a very strong case for doing it undoubtedly the case would be much stronger if we had whole new particles that we were probing.
0: Our second story today is a a UK science policy story and the UK has a new science advisor.
5: Yes, so we have a bunch of science advisors, but this is the government's chief scientific advisor. So this is the person who um, gives science advice to the Prime Minister and to the Cabinet, so the most senior decision making body and generally ensures as much as possible that government is making good use of uh, of science and and of evidence
0: And who are they?
5: So this is a person called Patrick Valance. so he has come from GlaxoSmithKline so from the pharmaceutical industry Um, He did have a career in universities before that so he's not purely from the industrial sector because I'm sure that would probably rile some university scientists and yes he'll be starting in April next year.
0: Always a very important role for looking at what's happening in science and research across the UK. But of course, right now, it's especially important.
5: Absolutely. So there's this funny little thing you may have heard of called Brexit. (laughs) And it's an enormous undertaking for the government. A huge number of regulations and laws are going to have to be rewritten. And a lot of these touch upon science policy, whether that be in the nuclear industry. And then there are also many, many environmental laws. and, And generally, it's across the board that there are impacts on science and there are places where we need really good evidence informing what the UK should do when it rewrites these laws and regulations. So it definitely seems to be the case that the, the role of Chief Scientific Advisor in, in this way is going to be even more important than ever.
0: Considering all that's going on, what's the opinion of Patrick Valence? What's the response to his appointment?
5: The response is pretty good. He's a little bit of an unknown quantity, perhaps because he does come from industry. So nobody really knows whether he's going to have any big passion projects. Um, So I think people will be looking at what he does first with um, great interest.
0: Let's move on to our third and final story for this week. And it's a story of one very special mouse named Eve. Why is Eve so special?
5: So Eve is a mouse who was born at the Jackson Laboratory um, in the States. And she and her um, partner, Adam, are the parents of a huge number of mice who are of a very popular strain who are used in biomedical research and uh, Eve is a lucky mouse in that she's getting her genome reconstructed.
0: I have to say I'm a little offended that they chose to reconstruct the genome of Eve and not Adam but putting that aside for the moment, why are they interested in uh, Eve's genome?
5: So generally when you're using mice in biomedical research you want to keep them as genetically similar as possible but of course if you use subsequent generations there are going to be mutations and and every generation about um somewhere between 10 and 30 new mutations pop up and they and they keep being passed down and and they call that genetic drift now the point is when you have these changes they can have physiological effects that actually affect experiments so They've shown that, for instance, some substrains of this, of this popular strain of mice have very different tastes in alcohol. Some have uh, quite different immune system responses. And, of course, that can really affect the experiments that you're doing. So what they're trying to do here is, uh, is to construct the genome of Eve so they have something that they can compare their strains to. So then you can uh, figure out what the differences are with the strain you're using and you can compensate for them.
0: So does this then fix the problem for all lab mice that we have or is it just some kind of specific set?
5: This is a a specific set. So Adam and Eve were mice who lived at this lab in 2005 and the researchers there realised the potential for this problem of genetic drift. And so they froze dozens or hundreds even of of the embryos of the the grandchildren of these mice and every five years they restart the strain but you're always going to get this this drift so That lab has come up with a particular way of not solving but slowing the problem. But of course, different strains at different labs developed by different firms will have genetic drift in different ways.
0: Well, even so, good for all those labs that are using uh, the descendants of Eve in their experiments. But how, how good is it? How big a difference is genetic drift having?
5: So it's really hard to actually figure out exactly what kind of an impact it's having. Probably a significant one, but uh, the awareness is pretty low within labs. How much drift they might have in their mice, and and how much they probably do need to compensate for it. So um, it might be that experiments or entire research programs are wasted when uh, people think they're using identical mice, and actually they are genetically diverged. But at the moment, we don't really know.
0: Lizzie, thanks for that update. For more on those three news
1: stories, head to nature.com forward slash news. So that's it for this week. Thanks as always for listening. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast, and you can contact us via email, podcast, and nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Adam Levy. See you next time. luxury quality within reach go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order quince.com slash style
5: normally being a little extra can be a bit much